Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you once again to another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we celebrate the life today of a young man who played 182 games of football, but he also provided us with one of football's greatest stories ever. Jason McCartney. Jace, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. How are you travelling? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to the, the uh, chat today. Yeah, looking forward to exploring your time with uh, Collingwood and Adelaide and North Melbourne, but you're red, white and blue at the moment. Yeah, correct. I've uh, been, uh, well, it's now in my sixth uh, season as list man- manager at the Western Bulldogs and, uh, yeah, obviously uh, absolutely loving it. It's um, it's a role that uh, probably when I finished playing, I worked at the AFL and, and worked towards getting in a position like this and, it, uh, it helps when you have uh, great success like we did last year. Obviously, all of the glory goes to the coach on the day and the 22 players who are out there on the day, but you must have taken great satisfaction with what the team was able to do last year and that fairy tale performance. You certainly do in the position I'm in, and obviously Simon Del Rimple is recruiting manager and, and the team that, that uh, works around um, our area because obviously when I started, we, we took on a, a team that uh, had been close but hadn't ultimately got there to to a grand final, and uh, it was ageing. So there were some changes that had to be made, and we based it predominantly off drafting. Uh, There's some strategic trade moves within that, but the 90% of that team was was based through the draft and then developed by the, the coaching program. So, yeah, you, you do. You sit back and you're really proud, but you're just more happy for the footy club. But just to see how much heartache that club had been through and for the supporters – and just to see how much it meant that day to, to finally salute. Was there one particular decision that you'd made over the journey in your time at the Western Bulldogs that you sat back on grand final night or in the days afterwards and thought, gee, I'm glad I did that? Yeah, I suppose because Simon sort of leads that area and you have a heavy involvement, like some of the picks, it's it's pretty handy when Bontempelli turns out to be the player he is and, and then there's Stringer and McRae and Hunter is father-son, but obviously one before my time, Jason Johannesson, who Simon picked as a rookie. So there's high and low ends from a, from a player acquisition from another club. Obviously Tom Boyd was, uh, was massive for the club and there were circumstances surrounding that, but a lot of work had been done uh, prior to that acquisition coming through. It's the mix of the high profile, the back end, and that's what it takes to win a flag. They, they come from uh, all different parts of draft trade. Um, it, it takes a lot and everything just clicked at the right time. So, yeah, a lot of satisfaction, though. An unforgettable moment, no question about that. A moment that you probably dreamt about when you were a young fellow in nil being involved in a premiership. How was yeah. life as a youngster in a country town in Victoria? Yeah, it was fantastic. Great, uh, 
great environment to grow up in, based around sport pretty much. So uh, my uh, my weeks would be school and pretty much Tuesday and Thursday night would be at the, um, the local footy club, uh, watching the senior team train and kicking the footy around. And then Wednesday night, the juniors would train. So absolutely loved it. And it was probably from the age of 14, I, I started playing and training with the seniors as well. So uh, that took up uh, the winter was made up of football and the summer was pretty much uh, midweek basketball and a lot of cricket. So, who was who was the first person who identified that you had the talent to be able to make it in the big time? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I, I probably think it would have to go back to just the regional, so the Wimmera uh, schoolboys under 15 selections and uh, probably a guy by the name of Wes Richardson uh, selected me and his team when I was uh, 14, so a bottom major. So that was probably the first indication I got that, I might be able to do something with this. And it, it pretty much flowed from there. And obviously drafting was different then. Uh, draft had only been in. So I was drafted 1990. So we're talking, it's probably only the third or fourth year the draft being in. And draft age was 16. So predominantly before that, I grew up, I was a mad keen Bombers supporter, Essendon, because that was our zone. And a lot of players from around the area had actually gone on and had great success at the Essendon Footy Club. So you finish up being number four draft pick. Yep. Uh, they often say that number one's a poison chalice, but if you've got a single-digit number, there's a lot of pressure on you. Yeah. I think there was in regards to where I ended up going to, Collingwood as well, but just because of the focus that's always on that football club. And also, they just won the premiership. It was a fair bit to, to live up to, and Collingwood had actually traded to get to, after winning the premiership, to get to that pick four position. Did you enjoy your time at Collingwood? Yeah, I did. I look back on it, and I was so young. You think 16 to, to virtually 20, the four years there, you, you're so young, you're naive, um, you're learning about life, uh, you're trying to be what was a semi-profession uh, back then. Everyone was working um, and it was that sort of 5 o'clock to 8, 8.30 type thing, pre-season, three or four nights a week and then obviously your, your in-season commitment. So wonderful people at that footy club though, as in all footy clubs really, but you walk in after they've just won a premiership and – probably the first player that came up to me was Peter Dacos. And it made you feel so welcome, the fact that straight away he's, uh, he nicknamed me Bomber. And the reason being, uh, Rowan Connolly did a, a, an article on me in the lead-up to the draft. And obviously uh, my bedroom at home was a shrine of the Essendon Footy Club, the, the Duna covers, pillowcase, the walls, uh, Tim Watson posters everywhere. So uh, that was great. So there's obviously some great people there. I must admit when I think back, when I did find out, because the draft was very different, obviously the um, it wasn't a broadcast of event. I found out just uh, via the local news bulletin on the radio. I did take the day off school that day, so I was hoping I was going to get called <laughs> out. But and Collingwood was a club that I hadn't probably the only club I actually hadn't had any dialogue with. So uh, pretty much shock when I found out it was Collingwood, and the only reason because being a mad Essendon supporter, a lot of my Collingwood mates. Uh, supporters, uh, I just despise Collingwood because of them, really. So, uh, so yeah, the shock of it all. But it was it was this great opportunity to um to start to live out that dream. And yeah, I've you know although I like I said I was really young, uh, got great memories of uh, the people and the opportunity that Collingwood provided for me. We'll take our first break, Jason. When we come back, we'll talk about moving on from Collingwood and the next chapter of your football life. Jason McCartney is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives for more than 80 years. Yeah! Australia got it! 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have Jason McCartney as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jason, we spoke about your time at Collingwood. Yep. How did the next stage of your career unfold? How did you move on from Collingwood? Yeah, pretty much the four years at Collingwood, the last couple of years, there was always that debate. I was drafted as a, a key forward, but I'd probably had my most success at, at representative level, the Vic Country 17s or the Victorian schoolboys under 15s, probably more so towards my 16th and 17th years as a uh, as a key defender. I played a lot of key defence uh, back home in Nil as well. So obviously at Collingwood at that time, uh, Craig Kelly went out of the side with a knee injury, would have been uh, mid-2000, uh, would have been mid-1992. And I got a pretty good run at it for the next sort of 10 weeks and really established myself in the side. And then the next year I had some hamstring troubles and Michael Christian come in and was uh, really dominant in that position. Also, obviously, you got Craig coming back then, Craig Kelly, and Gary Pert, who was just a star, had come to the footy club. So I was probably looking, well, where's where's the opportunity presenting? I'm not 100% sure where Collingwood saw me, to be honest. So whether I uh, I jumped before I got pushed, not exactly sure. But there was a lot of interest uh, across the border from Adelaide, uh, the Adelaide Footy Club. And Adelaide, growing up in Nil, it was a city I was really familiar with because growing up in Nil, halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide, spent a lot of time there as a family growing up, uh, holidays and things like that. So the the opportunity did present and um, jumped at that one. And Robert Shaw was there Correct, at the time yeah. and he was a driving force behind getting you. Yeah. But he wasn't there for long and then Malcolm Blight got there. Yeah. Did you feel as though you were kind of warehoused a little bit at Adelaide when you got there? Shorey started, um, he was appointed just before I came across. So Shorey was fantastic for me because um, I suppose we'd, you know, both been in that Melbourne Victorian football environment and I, I could see what he was trying to do. Like he was a great uh, strategist, um, Shorey, the way he coached. And the Adelaide way of, that they played was a lot of flair, which was fine. But obviously to have that success in big games and big finals in, in Melbourne, you needed to have that defensive mindset as well. So as a coach, that probably suited me uh, to a T because more a dour defensive role I played in. Played a lot of footy in those first two years under under Shorey. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out for Shorey as a club. Probably didn't help when Sean Wren, who was just an outstanding ruckman, missed most of those two years with a with a knee injury. So um, Blighty come in and he was all about the flair. And um, it was a bit of a struggle for me, to be honest. I played probably the first six games in uh, 1997 and then didn't really get a get a look in after that. I, I think my last game actually was back at Victoria Park. So that was that was interesting <laughs> after being there for four years. I copped a bit that day, played the first half as a, as a forward, didn't go so well and um, pretty much spent the whole second half on the interchange. So I thought uh, I was up against it there and ultimately um, finished up at the end of that year um, and, the, and the team obviously won a premiership, which was... Uh, Did you feel part of that? You do and you don't. It's hard. Having been there those two years prior and the majority of that young group uh, either starting or just coming in around that time, you did feel part of it in that way. But the fact that I only played the first six games, um, you think in isolation of that year, uh, not really. And I probably never, although I was in some reasonable form in the Sandful, never really got close to getting back in the side later in the year. So I, I was so fortunate at that time because I probably thought after seven years, I'd played 75 games at obviously Collingwood and Adelaide. I thought my days were numbered as an AFL player. I'd lost a lot of belief as well. And the main reason I thought, you know, Blighty's such an amazing coach and what he got out of that group. Um, 
if he doesn't think I'm good enough, maybe maybe I'm not, and I've had seven years. But I had someone who I'd never really met before. I'd played against when he coached in underage football, the old Teal Cup days, and that was Dennis Pagan. And he saw something in me. And it's ironic what I do now to you trying to look. And it was a, a move to try and get me to North Melbourne, really position-specific base because obviously they've won in 96 and Ian Fairley was a centre-half back. He retired and they sort of had that gap of a, a position there in, in um, 97 and he saw me as someone who potentially could fill that void. I think it's true that Dennis came over and saw you yep. and listed all of the positives, which was probably a very good thing for you at the time because, yep. as you said, your confidence had taken a bit of a battery. Yeah. Done your research. Very good. Um, I'll never forget that day because it's – was Wednesday or Thursday after we've won the premiership, so it's been a uh, it'd been a solid week. Just everything that was going on in that town that uh, the boys we had to go to as a group. And Dennis came over and he did. He had this A4 sheet of paper and he just had jotted down these things that w- what's good about me. And he did. He made me feel good about myself. And he went away. Uh, he was only at my place uh, in Westlake at the time. Probably spent two hours with me. Felt really good about myself after it. Didn't really know though. Still had still had some doubts. And ironically, I was uh, I was heading away that uh, next weekend with uh, Chad Rantoul, who'd played in that that premiership at the Crows in '97. Kane Johnson, who also played later, went on to uh, captain the Tigers, and Peter Vardy, who was unfortunately got injured in one of the finals and missed out. Now we we'd headed to Perth and we we're en route to uh, a week away in Bali, and I had to I had to make a decision because just with the stat decks and things getting signed, the trade period would have been on. Spoke with Dennis again, and for whatever reason, I just said, uh, I, I can't do it. I'm really grateful for um, what, you, what you've seen in me, but I just feel I can't do it. And um, probably 24 hours later, and had some conversations with my father about it, um, one, of my, uh, one of my brothers at the time, and, and the boys who were with me, it was probably the realisation that, why don't you just give it a go? It's just one year. And why don't you give it that opportunity? So then you'll then you'll know you won't get to the age we are now and think, "Geez, what what could have happened?" Dennis spoke to me again, and I wish I could recall what he said to me in that phone conversation. I don't know what it was, but I put down the phone, and five minutes later, I rang him back and I said, "I'm in." Dennis said to me, "I'm not going to guarantee anything, but if you do the work, I'll give you the opportunity, and I'll, I'll give you a, an opportunity for a period of time. I won't be in one week and out, so that can take away." I suppose, a bit of anxiety about performance and, and we'll take it from there. Let's fast forward yep. a little bit through that 1998 year. You talked about opportunity. It came on the last Saturday in September. Yep. And ironically, who Crows. would you be lining up against? Yeah, the Crows. I know. I know. We were, it was an amazing footy uh, team we had at North Melbourne and it's funny how it works out because that year uh, we were red hot. There's no doubt. We were the best side. Adelaide, in a different final structure, had, had gotten there and... Probably it was a bit of a shock that they'd beaten the Bulldogs uh, the week before. But also during that final series, they'd been belted in one game at the MCG um, by Melbourne. So all of a sudden, different system. Then they've made their way to the grand final. And then it was a game that we were so dominant, so, so dominant, but we didn't put the score on the board. And I remember going in at halftime, we were four goals in front, and I looked at Mick Martin, and we just hadn't had that much work. The ball wasn't even coming down there. But um, as we know with uh, Blighty, he threw the magnets around and, and probably one thing, he was way ahead of his time because one thing, we're a very uh, stable, through our midfield, there's only so many players that went through there and they would play the uh, predominant minutes in there 
Blighty flicked it around. Virtually another difference. A lot of players come into midfield, fresh legs, just completely overran us. I think Brett Allison had a shot at goal on three-quarter time and he kicked it and it got us back to one point going into three-quarter times. Uh, but it was the flattest feeling going in at three-quarter time. It's a game that um, uh, I don't think I've ever looked at any vision of it, to be honest. I may have got caught out a couple of times on Fox where you're flicking and it's been on, but it's just erased that one from the memory. Um so, so disappointing. So there's only one way you can ever make up for something like yeah, that, correct. and that's to win a premiership. Yep. Let's fast forward 51 weeks. Yeah. Preliminary final. Yep. 1999. You're heading for another crack of the flag. All about redemption. There's so many things, and we're, we're one week away from, from maybe getting that chance again. And late in the last quarter, we had the game under control, playing, uh, playing against uh, Brisbane. And uh, I got caught out covering for my old mate Mick Martin, his man, and it was Clark Keating at the time. I played every game that year, 24 games too. And uh, But I had this terrible technique against a lot bigger players uh, when I play on, a bit round arm with my spoiling technique. And one thing under Dennis, you knew you had to always make a contest. Now, I knew I was going to be late on a spoiling attempt with Clark Keating. My round arm technique, I thought, would get him in the shoulder and just let him know I was around. But I've seen the vision a few times and what I didn't realise is, well, he didn't land on his feet. He sort of dropped straight to his knees. So shoulder became nose and it, was, it wasn't good. Umpire Darren Goldspink, straight in the book. Uh, and I just knew then, I, I knew I'd cost myself a, a chance to play in a grand final. I know we had the, the process of the, uh, the uh, tribunal the next week, but I knew I was a goner. And uh, it's fair to say it probably wasn't, Pete, until... 4.45 or 5 o'clock on the Saturday after we played Friday night that I was dealing with the disappointment of not playing in a grand final again. But when Carlton beat the Red Hot favourites yeah. in the Bombers, who were the best side that year by far, when they uh, when the Blues saluted by a point, that was the dagger through my heart and the moment I realised not only am I missing out on playing in another grand final, I'm going to miss out on the Premiership because mm. there's just no way. Like the Blues were brave, but... There's no way they were going to be able to get up the next week and beat us. Yeah, they played their grand yeah, final in that preliminary final. Footy. So what was that week like for you, Jake? Uh, horrible. <laughs> horrible. Uh, you go through the tribunal process and you know it's uh, not going to be favourable, but you get through that. But when you go to the club, you had to get yourself up. You had to be upbeat and you had to be positive. I was able to get myself up, had a, had a really good week on the, on the track. Thursday afternoon training at the club, I just I just grabbed the boys as a group. I spoke to them about the opportunity and was was really emotional. And then and then beyond that, I didn't you know I was invited to go on the parade and things like that. I kept away. And uh, you've been out there in '97 in the suit, '98. Uh, you're out there, and unfortunately, it goes pear shaped, and you have to watch your mates go around again after doing it the year before and being envious, even though you're part of the squad. And then here I am now again in a suit. And uh, so much support and, and well wishes and you know, a lot of people patting you on the back. You're part of it. And we'll no, because I've got a suit on. There's no, there's no medallion. You're not up on the dais. Um, as bad as this is, I can't let it hold me back. Um, otherwise, it could ruin the, the next few years of my footy career. You showed incredible resilience in a football sense to overcome those setbacks, but it was going to pale in comparison yeah. to what was about to occur in your life. We'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Jason McCartney is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Yeah! You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. 
And it's a pleasure to have Jason McCartney as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jason, you spoke about your great friend Mick Martin. Yep. October 2002, you pack up, you head to Bali, as so many Australians do. Yep. And it would turn out to be something that would change your life and would change the lives of Australians forever. Yeah, it certainly was. And I spoke in that football sense before about, you know, covering for Mick in a game and ultimately got me <laughs> reported and missed the premiership. But uh, certainly that night and what transpired, uh, yeah, Mick really covered for me. So, yeah, we, uh, we, we'd actually been away with the North Melbourne boys. We'd, we'd been to uh, New Orleans on an end-of-season trip and uh, – some guys had stayed on there, others had travelled to other parts of the world. Mick and I came back, uh, planned trip to Bali for a week and, yeah, we only arrived actually in Bali that, that afternoon of October the 12th, Saturday afternoon and that evening we went out for dinner in Cooter. A really good uh, mate of mine, Peter Hughes from Perth and a friend of his in Gary Nash who only met that night. After dinner we were sort of making our way towards the Sari Club and I thought it was really good decision making by myself at the time that uh, it would be a bit bit noisy in there at the moment. Let's go over to Paddy's bar. At least we'll be able to share a beer and have a yarn and be able to hear each other. But, um, yeah, look, we're only in there 15 minutes and what obviously happened was a life-changing experience. And I think back and we now understand that five metres from where we're standing was actually where a suicide bomber designated the first of what had ended up being two or three blasts around that area that night. So, yeah, the the flash of the explosion, blinding, the, the sound was it was deafening, perforated eardrums instantly. But the one thing that will never, ever leave me was just that sheer force of the explosion. I now know why, seems we're only five metres away, but you play footy for a long time and uh, you see Glenn Archer and Byron Pickett and Mark Rusciuto and you see how tough and how hard they hit, but never, ever would they have deliver, delivered a hit like that. And unlucky to be in the situation, no doubt about it, but I feel that every step of the way – Every moment after that unfortunate incident occurred, I feel very lucky. I was lucky I was able to pick myself up off the ground. I was lucky when eventually I got my way out the front after we were blasted back into the building by the, the second explosion, the car bomb across the road at the Sari Club, that I was alone for only moments and then Mick appears through the smoke and rubble and he, he takes control. Thankfully, he wasn't as badly injured as I was and he sort of gets me up the road as far away as possible and then you laugh when you look back now, but he threw me on the back of a, a motorbike with a Balinese guy and just said, get him to the hard rock. Um, so you think about, well, you're in that situation. Wouldn't you go to a hospital? But that was about the 10th time I'd been to Bali. I think Mick had been half a dozen times and we didn't know where a hospital was because we'd never needed one. So the, the smart play by Mick was get back. We're staying at the hard rock hotel. There's always doctors on duties at the good hotels. And uh, Mick true to his word was right behind me on the next bike at the hotel for probably 45 minutes to an hour, a doctor with me and then loaded in the back of, oh, they said it was an ambulance, but it was a van and it was a bit <laughs> uncomfortable. But once again, so lucky because we got to the hospital, the Sangla Hospital in Depesar, which is the hospital, the local hospital. But we got there pretty quickly in comparison to the stories I've heard of others. It was a struggle for, for many hours. So when we arrived in that emergency ward, I remember 20 or 30 people being there maybe, um, but it wasn't to probably the next hour or so that the numbers just that that room was swelling. There was over two hundred, and, and I'm in a bad way. So once again, I, I feel a bit fortunate that I was in such a bad way because I could see a bit, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't pretty. But I think a lot about Mick because Mick's standing over me, providing so much comfort and support and reassurance, hanging there, buddy, hanging there, mate. 
And the reason he's saying it, because unfortunately Mick had to witness the carnage that was coming in into that place. So I've got images of Mick and I with that doctor in that room. And when you do a presentation, you look at it. I can't help but think about Mick in that situation and others that were there to help because they're exposed to things that uh, normal people shouldn't be exposed to. And there's no doubt um, for Mick, the physical scars were not uh, as prevalent for him as they were for me. But I reckon the mental scars for, for Mick and others in that situation are probably a lot worse, uh, were a lot worse and, and maybe ongoing in comparison to someone like me who was just really badly injured. The fact you had him there, yeah. did that stop you from dying? The Yeah, just the comfort. Just you're in a foreign country, even though I travel there a lot, um, just someone being with you. And he was with me right through for a good hour, hour and a half. The uncertainty was when um, Mick could be no longer and I'm now being wheeled outside because that hospital, it is outdoors and there's a sort of a corridor that's just undercover and it's all – and I was going to a, a waiting room with about five or six other people and that waiting room was then to go into theatre and be operated on. So you're, um, you're petrified at that point in time. You don't know what's about to unfold. You don't – we didn't even know it had been a terrorist attack at that stage. At that stage – the reports have been about a gas explosion, just trying to keep everyone calm. So, so Mick couldn't be me for that uh, at that point in time. And really my fate then was left in the hands of, oh, I think I remember peering up in a bad way and there was three or four Balinese doctors over me and um, uh, look, they, they just did the best they could and that's all you could ever ask for, which was in trying circumstances in conditions that, look, it's improved a lot, but it was the local hospital, let's face it. And they just weren't resource enough to, to handle a situation like that. So for me, remove some of the burnt skin and tissue, which found out a bit later on there was a fair bit, not understanding anything about burns at the time. The other thing they were confronted with was um, shrapnel wounds. The makeup of the blast where I was a backpack packed with nails. In a, in a bar, obviously, glass and metal, it picks up in its wake. So uh, for me, my lower back and legs, there was, there was a bit of that they had to remove. Being out the front of Paddy's Bar that night, the, the soot all over your body obviously was a bit messed up, but yeah, that, that smell of burning flesh, but the soot and everything as well. And um, that was one of the things for me in the situation after it, when I finally got my, regained my vision, you saw the building on fire, obviously saw other people on fire, but then I looked over my left shoulder and I realized I was on fire then too. So it was, it was panic stations, but yeah, you, you're spot on about the, the, the smell. And, and for me, the instant thing that struck me, my hands were, were a mess. And the only way I can describe it, it was like, I suppose it was like wax dripping from a candle. So uh, the, the smell, the soot, the hands, I knew I was in a bad way. Did you think at any stage, I'm gone? I did, I did. And it's, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk about it a lot. And I think nearly every time you talk about it, there's little snippets you, you might miss, but you, you've jotted my mind with that question now in regards to, I remember saying to Mick, when he, he emerged and he grabbed me out the front there. Um, there was a, a bit of humour, actually, strangely enough. I, I asked the question, how do I look? Because in my mind, in two months' time, I'm getting married. Yeah. So the first thing is, how, how do I look, Mick? And Mick was mumbling and stumbling, a bit, which he can do, but he had the perforated eardrums, so he couldn't hear so well. And he said, oh, you're a bit, bit singed and 
Then Mick asked the question of me, well, how do I look? And I said, mate, well, you're pretty bad anyway, so <laughs> what's going to change it? But then it was, I just, I suppose the shock and the panic starting to set in, I just grabbed him and said, no, just please don't let me die here. Mm. Um, and yeah, he's amazing, Mick. And, you know, I, we do joke around a lot and Mick's name comes up a lot when I talk about this and you have a bit of fun with it or if anyone's heard any of the North Melbourne boys talk at any stage, there's always a Mick Martin joke, but he is a, a true gentleman and an absolute heart of gold. And I look back and I don't, I doubt whether I would have, I doubt whether I would have made it without him because I don't know where I would have went to, even though I had been there a lot. Um, so the fact that he's clear thinking in a situation like that, and thankfully he wasn't badly hurt, he was able to navigate through and, uh, and really give me the best chance, I suppose. 63 days later, you walked down the aisle yeah. with Narissa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd lost, a, I'd lost a bit of weight and I was a bit shaky on the legs, but uh, it was amazing because uh, after eventually getting back to Melbourne and a bit of a struggle for a couple of days, intensive care, multiple operations, skin grafts, then ended up in a coma, I was struggling to breathe. And you, you get beyond that and you come out of the coma after six days and I was not thinking about footy at that stage. All I wanted to do was, okay, the wedding was the number one priority. Got told, probably need to postpone. You'd be in hospitals six to eight, maybe 10 weeks in rehab. Uh, with these injuries, highly unlikely footy. But I just set about a process. And it was, I suppose, Pete, for me, the disciplines that have been ingrained in me through my working life, which was AFL footy from 16, they really came to the fore that ability to, to really set some goals and be focused towards achieving, understanding, although I had some big obstacles with these injuries, uh, just met the mental strength required, the discipline, commitment. You can, although I was hopeful, I realised through experience uh, you can get there eventually. So we, we went ahead. We planned to go ahead with the wedding and ultimately I got myself in a position uh, which the, the people at the Alfred who are amazing, they still chuckle. But I got out in about three and a half weeks. And in my planning, I knew I had to do that because I couldn't get out the week before the wedding or the day before the wedding because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Like I mentioned a bit earlier, I think I lost 10 or 11 kilos. So it would have just been too weak. So I needed that that period of, yes, I was going through rehab in the hospital, but getting out and coming back in as an outpatient and really increasing that rehabilitation process. So um, I was in a situation where, our wedding day went ahead as scheduled and it was just a fantastic day. And I was, although I was pretty banged up and the scars were, were quite visible, um, I, I was in reasonable health at the time. That was one incredible moment in your life after Bali. Yep. Your 29th birthday was another incredible yeah. moment in your life. What happened on that day? Yes. Although football wasn't really a thought, it was all about the wedding and for me in my mind to try and make a full recovery, I just felt I had to get back and do everything that I was doing beforehand. So the wedding's a part of it. And then the other obvious one is my work. I, I set a goal and my ambition was I wanted to play by the, the start of the 2003 season, which generally is the end of March. Now, no one gave me a chance, but I exceeded my own expectations. So as you said, my 29th birthday, 14th of March, 2003, I run out onto, it's changed names a fair bit, it's now Icon, might have been busy at the time at Carlton, and I ran on there about, would have been about an hour after, might have been Melbourne and West Coast had had a practice match, and this was for Port Melbourne, which was our affiliate at the time, versus the Northern Bull Ants, and it was their reserves. So a very, very low-level game, um, but that was a monumental occasion for me because although I was had to wear pressure garments, 
all I wanted to know was, could I still do it? Could you still play the game? And obviously those fears uh, were alleviated um, in a very, very low-level game. I was able to get my hands on the footy a bit. And that's probably the day, Pete, to be honest, that yes, they were goals, they were aspirations, but early on they were probably just dreams. That's the day I realised I can really do this. It was a few weeks after that that you went out on the football field for the last time. But yeah. those of us watching the game didn't know that. Yeah, that's right. How did you keep that a secret? Yeah, well, like I mentioned earlier, it was it was never the um, the goal to play the one game. But obviously starting back then in mid-March and I was playing right through then the VFL season, we had a good side at playing some pretty good footy, understanding that it's at a different level. And I was playing as a key defender and I look back and you know, I had 12 years of AFL experience behind me. I knew... Uh, where and when to put myself to get a bit of the ball without probably putting the body on the line too much. The footy club at the time probably couldn't believe I was going as well as I was. And um, the frustration for me was huge, though, Pete, to be honest, because I would go to training often on a Monday and uh, Dean Ladley was in his first year as senior coach at the footy club. So I understand it would have been difficult trying to manage all this with that when it's your first year. And it would often be on a Monday at training, the, the senior team, AFL team from the week before, would split up with the three emergency and maybe a couple other names. And I was never part of it. So I was off on the side and it was pretty much myself and David Dunbar, who was uh, coaching Port Melbourne at the time. And it might've been a couple of rookies and we we're training on the side and I, I was hating it. It was amazing one day. It was at Port Melbourne in a game. We we're playing Box Hill. So I was playing a pretty good game. Uh, we we're two highly ranked sides that day. And lo and behold, Pete, hurt my calf in about the third quarter. And the calf was some complications about it. A whole lot had blown in there from a shrapnel wound and obviously only minor. But at that stage, again, I went home that night and I thought, that's it. I'm done. I said to Narissa about it. She got on the phone to Glenn Archer and Anthony Stevens and talked to them about it. They were speaking to me, my mate Peter Hughes. Once again, although a minor obstacle, I just thought everything is conspiring against me here. I missed two weeks with that calf injury and I was able to still do a lot of the training because it was only minor. And I remember even Dean Ladley saying to me and encouraged me, mate, you've had, you've had a lot worse than this. I said, no, you're right. I've had time to think about it. But in those couple of weeks, what became clearly apparent, the light bulb moment is I felt unbelievable within myself because I wasn't, although I was training and exercising, I wasn't breaking open grafted skin by getting hit all the time. So I had so much more energy and I just realized then that, you know, I understood with these burns, the process is, is ongoing and long and at two, three years healing process. I just realized then, I said to Narissa one night that um, I'm desperate to get back, but you know what, if and when I do, that'll be it. On that night, I think you had three disposals. You spent a fair yeah, bit of time yeah, on the bench, but you had a decisive <laughs> disposal late in yes. the game. Yeah, yeah. That must have made you feel pretty good about your involvement in footy. Just that one yeah. moment, a goal assist, yeah, yeah. must have made you feel pretty good about yourself. The whole night, Pete, was remarkable. And footy was different then because rotations never heard of. So I did, like you mentioned, I spent a bit of time on the bench the whole first quarter. Second quarter, full forward, running down to the uh, Richmond cheer squad end and they, they stood as one and cheered and supported. And it was it was amazing. And it worked because I didn't do too much for the quarter. <laughs> but I kicked a point, gave away a couple of frees. Third quarter didn't change too much. So I must admit, going in at three-quarter time, three time and our team meeting Friday morning, uh, no one, none of the players knew, but our leadership meeting after it, which I was a part of, I informed the, the eight leaders that win, lose or draw a bit. So they're the only ones that know. I go in at three-quarter time, a really tight game. I've done sweet bugger all. And all I was fearful of is um, I'm going to be back on the on the pine, on the interchange. 
saw my name up there. Thank goodness. Um, very early in the last quarter, take a mark, go back with great relief, kick a goal, and then a, a fair amount of gap in between, Pete. But with probably three or four minutes to go, just plonked myself in front on a ground ball and was able to control it well enough. And as I was slung in the tackle, just dribbled this kick forward. And it was was rolling into the goal square. And people say, oh, I would have went through. It would not have went through. It was never going to make it. But Lee Harding, who was extremely quick as a player, good little good little goal sneak, and he was even quicker running towards goal. He swooped on it and uh, kicked the goal. And um, from that, the next two and a half minutes, there was some uh, unbelievable efforts from the guys that uh, – it was just like they went above and beyond to make sure we uh, ensured that victory and sent me out on a really fantastic note. So the siren sounds. Yeah. Tony Jones comes out to you yep. and does the interview. And everybody watching this has got a tear in their eye. Yeah. You seem the most composed person about this whole thing. Yeah, I was, I was at peace with it all. I was cooked. I was exhausted mentally. And like I said, physically, I had a long way to go the way the game panned out. You couldn't have scripted a better way to go out. There's no doubt about it. The biggest thing for me, maybe that I was composed because I was concentrating intently on the questioning, trying to find the opening to let it be known. Because one thing I'd said to our media team at the time, I was earlier in the year, I was at a game in Adelaide and I saw one of the players interviewed on TV after the game, but I was actually there and it was uh, broadcast around the stadium. I was well, I thought, you know what, if I ever got that opportunity, I was finishing up in these circumstances. I'd love that because great for the TV audience, but also the punters who have paid up members and they're there every week. So they would know as well. So TJ had no idea. Eddie was amazing. He knew I was in there on Thursday at the footy show and he freaked me out a bit when I walked into his boardroom. He said he knew, but true to his word, did not say anything about it, kept it tight. Once I found the opening, was able to, yeah, just announce it to, to everyone there and uh, remarkable. In the rooms after it, upstairs, the function. It was like grand final victory. It was an extraordinary moment in football, an extraordinary moment in Australian history. Um, we'll take a final break and we'll come back and wrap things up with Jason McCartney on the other side of the break. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And we are here with Jason McCartney to wrap things up on one of football's greatest stories ever. Jace, you had to go back to Bali. Yep. And you had to sit in a courtroom with the people who perpetrated this disgraceful crime. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you find the strength to sit there and do that? Yeah, it was a struggle. Probably, Pete, I would say that's probably the toughest day I've ever experienced. And it was only a week after the retirement game, a week and a bit, uh, a week that I found, or three days after retiring, I found out I needed to go back. So to sit in that courtroom, my great mate Peter Hughes was one of the other Australians giving evidence, another young lad from um, down in Tassie. The enormity probably didn't hit me till we got there. Uh, The media attention, world media, we're also the first Australians to ever give evidence in a a trial against terrorism. But what really hit me was the actual day that courtroom was just a hall, but we were in a, a room probably 50 to 60 metres away. And the young guy, Stewie from Tassie, he was the first um, person to go in and give evidence. And the courtroom was packed. And we were able to watch on Bali TV in the room we were in. And you, you're building yourself up, but then it just hits you like a ton of bricks because you see Stewie, who's right next to you, then a couple of minutes walk, he walks into a room and you see Amrosie sitting there. So the enormity really hits you. So the most challenging thing that day, Pete, was, and the hardest thing to do was all we could do was talk about ourselves. 
victim impact statement, how it impacted on us directly. And the challenging thing I found about that was meeting some of those people over that weekend that were in the courtroom. And there's a lot of people there that lost loved ones. And I'll never forget, never forget this lovely couple from down Geelong way. And uh, whilst I had to peel the garments back, talk about how bad it was for me, there they are sitting there. And we need to understand they lost two sons and they lost a daughter-in-law who was pregnant at the time. And that's when it makes you realise, gee, no matter how bad things are, there's others that are far, far worse off. And that was, that was a really challenging day. And I went in too wanting to really focus on Amrosi, probably borrowed Glenn Archer's mad stare, as we know what that can be. And yeah. But very quickly, he wouldn't look at, at any of us. And I saw that he was just a, just a coward. And that's when the game plan, talking footy lingo, had to change. And, it, and that was a struggle, talking about yourself, knowing how there's other people in there and just thinking, how are you able to sit through this? And yeah, I went away from that thinking, okay, there's, there's nothing more I can do. Whatever this uh, system decides will be the punishment. Um, so be it because y- you've, you've given evidence and that's it. And you've got to try and work your way forward and, and move on with your own life. Um, but that, yeah, Pete, that was, that was an unbelievable day. In light of that, Jace, do you ever wake up and get survivor guilt? I'm sure you probably felt it a bit that day in the courtroom, but yeah. do you feel it now? I, I don't now, Pete. I did in the courtroom that day, and there was one, probably two other occasions in particular uh, where I had experiences where I really did because I was I was challenged by people who were grieving. And I, under, I understand why, but it was quite confronting when you might be meeting someone for the first time through mutual friends. They've lost a loved one in what happened in Bali, and they're going through everything and then they get to the stage of finding out that they've lost a loved one and then the anger directed towards me because I survived. Um, yeah, they, there are a couple of times where it was quite challenging. But I can I could talk about, you know, 100 people I've met through this experience that have got equally, if not um, worse experiences than what I went through and have worked really hard to just work their way through and continue on with their lives. It truly is an incredible story. Um, we've spoken about this before and it's never any less compelling when I hear your words about it. You might have said before that the footy gods were against you at one stage <laughs> in your career, but maybe some of the other gods were looking after yeah, you at no some doubt. stages. No doubt. Thanks for your time. No, great to chat, Pete. Thank you. Jason McCartney, a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll have another one same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.